Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, we're going to be talking with Nadim Zaidi, a Montreal-based artist, about what it's like to be an artist during this crazy pandemic. Welcome, Nadim. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. I'm really uh, glad this this worked out after the previous flakiness. <laughs> oh, no worries. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. So actually I didn't uh, even realize it was happening that night because I didn't get a confirmation email. So I came downstairs after putting my daughter to bed. And then I saw it was 828 and I got a message from Eric saying, okay, we're gonna start the call in two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I got I was asleep and I got the message the next day and I because it was not on <laughs> it wasn't on the calendar. And I was like, no. <laughs> That's like the good. worst. Like, you know, people have like my friend Fred was telling me that he still he's 80 years old and he still gets like uh, those stress dreams where you feel like you slept through an exam. Like at oh, 80, he still gets them. He still gets these anxiety dreams. But for, for me as a, a podcaster, that is like the worst possible like fear. It's like, Oh my God, I forgot about an interview. There was like, it's, <laughs> it's the worst like stress. It's, it's like, no, <laughs> but anyway, we made it happen. So what, uh, well, uh, maybe before we even get into that, maybe you can sort of introduce yourself to our listeners. What, what do you, what do you do? What is, how would you describe yourself? Sure. So I'm a uh, artist who likes to uh, push some paint, uh, especially enjoy <laughs> oil painting the most. And I also enjoy ink drawing. Um, and I really like to work with images and distort images and usually do figurative art with a lot of kind of more of a surrealist bent. Um, and I like to experiment with each painting. So sort of pushing myself in a new direction, but I didn't think I could go. <laughs> okay. This is, this is something that I've been really, really preoccupied with for a while, which is what exactly happens to, to artists at this particular moment in history, right? Because, because there's all these new technologies and all these new ways of doing things. And so some, some forms of art, it, it sometimes feels from somebody like me, who's not an artist, who's looking from the outside, it looks like, you know, if you were to um, train, for, <laughs> train for 20 years to become like a really badass samurai swordsman, and you study with all the best masters and you're like totally kick-ass with like a sword and you all this stuff. And then guns come on the scene. <laughs> and it just, and it just seems like 
you know, your your whole skill set is just practically useless because like if somebody can just some fat guy like who gets out of breath from walking upstairs can just go like like across the field and shoot you and you have like your and meanwhile you know i mean i guess the equivalent would be some some like pimply teenager with like a bunch of apps on his phone or like some very shoddy photoshop photoshop skills you know like i'm wondering like how much is technology changing and sort of rendering a lot of artistic skills, I don't know, like less less in demand, or, or is that happening? It's kind of a lot of things are happening right now, um, because I actually have a day job as a visual effects artist, so I'm kind of got a foot in both camps. So I work both digitally for the day job, and I do oil paints at night. So, <laughs> I'm so sort the of visual switching. effects, what is that? So I work for visual effects and film. So that is, uh, I'm currently a matte painter. So I do a lot of like uh, background and environment design and things like that for big budget movies. Wow, that there's a guy in our, like we, in our building, it's basically, it's four owners in a condo building and we have, you know, our apartment. And but the guy who's on the top floor, he's, oh my God, he, He's, I think, 20, the young guy. Like, he bought the place yeah. when he was 24, 25. I think he's probably like 28, 29 now. But he does um, explosions. Like, uh-huh. he, basically, his whole thing is he does, like, he's a visual effects artist. And he does, his whole job is, like, fire, like, explosions. <laughs> and he makes so much money off of this. And it's all, yeah. like, big budget movies. And so he'll, he'll tell me, like... And he he said he basically he took some some three year program at a stage up in Quebec City, and he just thought, oh, that looks cool. He took this three year program and got a job doing visual effects right out of um, right out of stage up, and that's what he that's what he does. He moved here and got that, and so and it just it sounds like a completely so you're doing in that same kind of realm. Yeah, exactly. So, and the thing is, is that um, I kind of have a an eye on sort of both what's going on digitally and uh, with uh, traditional art making. So, what you mentioned about like noticing trends and things like that, it's I totally noticed it and I totally feel it. So, yeah. your your analogy of the uh, of the samurai sort of rings really true because with digital means you can work so much faster, but at the same time. Um, things like oil painting and acrylic painting, whatever, traditional painting, it's not going away. There's still a lot of people who are doing it and there's still a lot of people interested in it. So it hasn't gone the way of the dodo quite yet. And I'm hoping it doesn't anytime soon. Yeah, I, I, I hope so as well. Cause my, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but my, my younger son, Indy, my, who's my 17 year old, he started off in Dawson illustration and design and he uh, was really psyched about it. He got very discouraged early on because uh, he pretty much knew the stuff that they were teaching him already just because he went to FACE and he has been studying the stuff by himself for a number of years now. So he knew most of the techniques that they were teaching him. But he, he's also, you know, we have all these long conversations about how exactly 
am I going to make a career out of this? And so what I've tried to do a number of times is, is get friends of mine who are, are working artists who actually make a living off of it and get them to, uh, to talk to them about it. And it's, it's just like, it's, it just seems like it's one of those fields that is changing so, so rapidly that um, you end up having to kind of reinvent yourself uh, again and again. Like, for instance, give you two, two examples. One is a friend of mine, Rick, and he started off as a graphic designer. And he had a good business for a while. He was doing, he did like the uh, signs menus for, you know, really nice like restaurants and bars. And he had like a, a lot of amazing accounts. Like he did Wino Notte and all this stuff. And he was doing well. But then pretty soon um, everybody's got a nephew or like a cousin or a daughter who has got like a little bit of skills with some sort of digital program. It's like, I can do that. You know, <laughs> so they end up getting like, you know, some family member to, and it doesn't look good, but it, it sort of cuts into their business, right? It cuts into, uh, and the same thing has happened with, uh, with photography, with videography. The, the more that people get these tools that allow them to at least feel like they can do it all themselves then that so he finally like switched out of um doing graphic design because he said his uh, profit margins were going down 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 and then also uh, because of globalization you can get you can get like a graphic designer in mumbai uh, to do your work over the internet and that graphic designer has like studied at all the best schools and is amazing uh, and we'll work for a third of what she, somebody here in Montreal will work for because of the exchange rate, right? So it, it just seems like, I'm just curious, how how do you manage to um, survive in these shark-infested waters? Yeah, you kind of have to be uh, <laughs> on the ball, if you will. Um, yeah, it's it's tough. It's It's constantly changing. It's there are tools that make you able to create digital art faster and faster. Um, but the thing for me, at least I can only say from my experience, is that I still like to oil paint. I still like to, to paint traditionally, even though I know I could do it probably a lot faster if I did it on a computer. But it's actually the actual process of like pushing out the paint, mixing the paint together, mixing in the mediums using a paintbrush to paint on your canvas. It just, nothing can beat that feeling for me, um, which is yeah. why I still do it. It's just, it's process for me. Cause I know like I could apply a couple filters to an image and I could have something that looks like a painting ridiculously quick in Photoshop, but I'm not going to do it. I just, I can't, I don't get the same fulfillment if you will. So if painting ever does, traditional painting ever does die out, then yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I'll be pretty miserable. Well, I don't think I don't think it'll die out. I think it's yeah. it'll be more like. Uh, have you ever read what is that Neil Stevenson novel? The one that came out in, I think it was like nineteen ninety nine. It's about like the uh, the Diamond Age, um, or or nineteen ninety five. It's the the Diamond Age, or a, a young lady's illustrated primer, and it's set in the future where the 
they have like um, kind of like the very advanced version of 3D printers. And they're so advanced now that they can not only make like a gun or, you know, they can make um, human organs <laughs> to like replace, they can make food, they can make uh, these. And so because of these, these matter compilers, it basically it's, it's describing a post-scarcity world where there is no more like scarcity of stuff for food that you can, these matter compilers are everywhere and you can, um, you can like print out like whatever you want, including dinner, like anything. Right. And, but of course there's people who like the equivalent of like the 1%, you know, the ultra rich and they want things to be authentic and handmade and so there's these, there's still this like industry of people who want um, actual paper, like real paper that's made out of, out of trees and they want, and so there's people, there's a, like, a, sort of like what you would find in any rich New England um, seaside city in like Kennebunkport or Rye, New Hampshire, or like, you know, whatever these rich posh like uh, seaside where there's people who make homemade traditional honey and homemade this and homemade that and crafty this and crafty that. And in a, in this novel, it's like basically artists are employed by the ultra rich who want things that are, so they want painting that's done with actual paints. <laughs> like they want like with actual oil paints and acrylics, but it becomes just like this niche thing for the, for the ultra rich, I mean, I guess, I guess to some extent it already is that, right? That's what I was about to say. Yeah, uh, it's funny it that you mentioned that. Diamond Age because I, I have that book sitting on my bookshelf, and I got about halfway through it. And you know what? The weird thing is, I really, really enjoyed it. I just never finished it, and I don't know why. It's it's probably one of my favorite Neil Stevenson uh, novels. I've read it. I think probably like four times now, but it's, it's very freaky in terms of his, well, for, for a lot Mm -hmm. of reasons, but, but there is this um, kind of obsession with kind of authenticity and getting to the real thing. And then the the challenge has always been, and this is, I mean, I know this is probably a gross oversimplification, but when photography came on the scene in the late 19th century, early 20th century this initially really scared the living shit out of like painters because um they would obviously a lot of their money was doing portraits and things like that for for wealthy people but if if wealthy people could just get a photograph taken it was much faster and it often you know was much more realistic or at least they thought it was um and so it gradually started replacing painting and so then uh, there's an argument i remember horse tutter used to say this all the time i, I, oh, I love really, Hutter. <laughs> yeah i was never really like sure i never looked into whether this is true you you probably know but horse used to say that uh, that impressionism and abstract expressionism were basically just uh market responses to the fear that artists had that painters had because of photography so they're like okay mm-hmm. well realism clearly is not our meal ticket so let's make like a bunch of splotches that just sort of communicate a mood and color and like let's let's do things that that 
photographers can't do. Let's make like, because clearly realism is not like, <laughs> why are we going to compete with them on that when they can do it um, at least as well as us way faster and cheaper. So we'll do it's something It's funny different. that you uh, make that comparison because I, I'm noticing the same thing between digital painting and, you know, current um, traditional painting is that I'm, I'm seeing a lot of artists who are s- switching back to sort of impasto kind of techniques and like having like really, really thick textures thrown on top of their canvas and doing all kinds of crazy things. Like I know one guy who puts holes right through his canvas. Uh, he'll do like a beautiful figurative painting. And then in the face, he'll just punch out a hole right in the canvas. So you can, it's totally like doing these things to show like, okay, this is not a digital image. This can never be a digital image just because of what I've added to it or what I'm emphasizing. So I'm definitely yeah. noticing a trend like that. Yeah. And then also, I mean, how do you, uh, I've seen this at a number of art shows, like where they'll say, okay, this is a limited, limited edition print. So there's only been, you know, whatever, 10 prints of this made and they're each like signed and numbered and stuff like that. And then so you can still feel, it's like kind of creating like with monetary policy, it's it's creating artificial scarcity to give something value, mm-hmm. right? And that that becomes. Uh, but then, you know, my question always with those things is like, well, how do you know? How do you know that it's actually <laughs> like what's to? Is there any kind of accounting firm that makes sure that there's only tens of them? I mean, I doubt it. Like, there's got to be a way to to get around that, you know? But yeah, I don't, I just don't know. I, I stress about this a lot, you know, partially because I love art, but also because my, my son is getting into it. I just By the way, I've what... seen your son's uh, drawings, man, and paintings. He's got some skills, I'll tell you that. Yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's really, really good. He's, uh, but he definitely thinks about that. Um, yeah. And I had him, another one of my friends I had him talk to is Bevan, and Bevan Ramsey, and Bevan said... Among other things, he said, well, make sure that you can work in lots of different mediums. Like, make sure that you can that you can do a lot of different things with a lot of different materials, both like uh, kind of real materials and then digital stuff. And, uh, and also learn how to be kind of a sales, salesperson and an entrepreneur because so much. Uh, he said, you know, you're going to go into these art programs. And, and they're going to just completely misrepresent what art is actually, what this job is actually about. Like, it's all going to be like expressing yourself and like, oh, and you, and yet when you, when you get into the job very often, it's going to be like, can you give me a painting that matches my couch? <laughs> and you're going to have to. So if you're very precious about, you know, what you're doing, you you better be independently wealthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean does that sound fair to you i i think it does it sounds pretty accurate um i mean look at me i'm i do paint traditionally and make traditional works but i also do a day job as well you know it's kind of like i kind of had to learn multiple skills over the years it's not just painting it's photoshop it's taking good photographs of your paintings it's um even a little bit of coding that i did in university so just kind of kind of all feeds the hustle, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I, I wonder, though, 
again, I wonder if this has always been like this. Like, remember in, in, in Professor Hutter's class, like, he would tell us that, um, I, I remember there was this one aphorism in um, The Joyful Wisdom, Nietzsche's The Joyful, where he talked leisure and idleness, where he talks about how, like, the people who have um, made great art and great literature and, and all sorts of different uh, that these throughout history has mainly been people who had had their physical needs being met by some other revenue stream. <laughs> like either they had like a, a patron or they had or they were independently wealthy, or sometimes they had um, some sort of Joe job that just paid the bills, and then they would do their you know their work work like on the side. And that that's, that's kind of been the norm for most of human history. And it's only now that we think that somehow, you know, it's going to be different. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's funny, like, didn't Nietzsche himself have that opportunity where he kind of, he, he got, he, I think he was let go of his job at the university, but didn't he start, receive financial compensation for a long well, he, time? Yeah, I mean, he got this, like, dream job in his mid twenties, but then his health problems became overwhelming. And so they, they let him take um, early retirement slash extended disability. And so he had, he had the equivalent. It's so funny. Cause he, he talks like he's such a hard ass, like, yeah, survival <laughs> of the, and, all. and meanwhile, he was basically living off of Andrew Yang's like dream, like universal basic income. Yeah. <laughs> he basically had uh an income from the from Basel, from the university that covered his um, his living expenses, his food, and everything like that. So he, yeah, he had absolutely no. For most of his productive life, he had no obligations. He didn't have to teach. He didn't have to publish. He didn't have to go to meetings. He just like hung out and wrote and read and walked around. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, he basically, and in fact, there was um, Andrew Yang on his podcast. He had um, he had Grimes on his podcast, and it was it's a really good interview. It was really fascinating. But one of the things that that she said is, she said, "Well, you know, coming from Canada, I got all sorts of government government money that allowed me to, and I got like cheap education in Montreal." And I was able to kind of explore and develop myself as an artist. And that was very much thanks to the taxpayers of Canada. And so she said, you know, I kind of had what you're pushing for in Canada. <laughs> like I had like a, a version of the universal basic income, which allowed me to develop. And I, if I was somewhere else, I don't think I, I would have been able to do that, right? So I mean I think it seems like for art, um, maybe that's necessary. I mean, do you think we should have like a universal basic income uh, for artists? Oh, I hundred percent agree. <laughs> so why? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, for purely for me for purely selfish reasons, which is to have the money and the time to create. So you can give a hundred and. 100% of your time to doing exactly that which you want to do. 
It's as yeah. simple as that. For artists, you mean UBI for artists? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would be it would be for everybody, but specifically, I think um, you know if you look at the numbers on you know if you you talk to I, I regularly get into these sort of conversations with these like free market ideologues and libertarians and fans of Nietzsche and Ayn Rand and all this stuff. And they have this very tough survival of the fittest social Darwinist worldview often. And they say, well, you know, we need to keep people hungry and we need to keep people like kind of that people who are hungry and striving produce, you know, the best, the best like art, the best music, the best literature, the best, they come up with new businesses and you know all these different things. And yet, you know, when you actually look at the numbers, they just don't bear that out. Like most new businesses, most uh, new ideas and well, innovation in general, generally speaking, comes from people who have a some sort of a cushion because they have family money or they have support from institutions or something like that, which gives them the freedom to just create. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, people who are constantly just trying to like make ends meet and they tend to sort of, you know, they, they don't produce that much you know, interesting stuff because they're too busy trying to just pay their rent and put food on the table and make the mortgage payments, you know, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, what do you, what do you think about all that? Yeah. I mean, what you said makes sense. Um, I think uh, I think having those not only the universal basic income, you bring up a point about you know institutional support. I think that is so important. Um, it's such such a valuable resource for artists. Like I'm very thankful. I never did an MFA myself or anything like that, but I'm very thankful it exists. Um, I see a lot of work that painters are doing in the MFA programs, and I'm just like go that is fantastic you know like i'm just thankful that it's there i'm thankful that um people have the opportunity to spend one or two years to really explore their ideas and push them as far as they can go um i i think it's so important and it would be a that's my cat in the background just jumping around <laughs> <laughs> she got tired of me talking so she left um, she left it. yeah no, I mean, I, I think it's so important. I think support is, is a huge part of it. And if you, as an artist, can get any of that kind of support, go for it. Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be a world where it's, you know, this kind of Darwinistic um, thing where it's like, okay, the only the strongest artists will survive. Let's throw them all in a barrel, start fighting, and whoever crawls out, you're the winner, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, right now it seems very often like that like the students i've had lots of students that have gone into to art and they i mean i hear this from from plenty of former students who've gone into fields and they say oh it's not like what i thought it was going to be but i would say of of all of them the ones that say that most emphatically is definitely the ones that have gone into into the arts like they just say like i had no i like nothing about my training, my school training and stuff like that prepared me for what this actually is. Yeah, and there's, I mean, there's always like some of a mismatch. You know, I hear people, uh, for instance, who go go through grad school and end up 
you know, teaching Cégep or university and they say, you know, I didn't get any training in how to teach. I just hung out in a library and, and read and wrote and went to seminars. And I was, you know, I was spent most of my time by myself and I was like very isolated and alone. And then suddenly they throw me in a classroom and say, teach. And like, I, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a total introvert. I don't like know how to like deal with other people. They, they just think it's hell, you know, at first. And a lot of them end up dropping out because they're like, I, I don't like this. So there is, yeah. I mean, it's not the only one, but in the arts, it seems like when you get in, when you get in the particular job, you know, what you're doing is so different from, <laughs> from what you thought. I mean, was it, when you got into that world, did you have a bunch of assumptions about what it was going to be like? And to what extent was it different or did it conform to your assumptions? I mean, for me personally, uh, I did two degrees. So I did a political science degree and then I did, um, I did another degree in university, which is computation arts. So traditional painting, I actually didn't even study in a school. It's kind of something I've been on my own. But uh, computation arts is probably the closest to a fine arts degree. It is the fine arts degree, technically. Um, but I can tell you from my own experience in computation arts, so we did everything from like 3D modeling to like video art to everything under the sun. But there were two strands. There was the commercial side of it, which was like, learn how to do uh, 3D modeling, learn how to do programming, you'll get a job. And then there's the other strand which was the, the sort of art school track. So it was kind of a schizoid kind of program where you were kind of like, you're taking some classes that are designed to improve your employability. And then the other classes you're taking are a complete like other end of the spectrum. Like this is solely to prepare you for when you do an MFA and you have your thesis and you have your, you know, your big installation projects at the end of the semester. So it was, I kind of knew what was, gonna happen when I got out <laughs> I knew it was gonna be like it's you have two tracks to go you can take the employability route which I guess is more the route I took and then the other side is nope I'm gonna focus on this I'm gonna, I'm gonna explore my ideas then I'm gonna come back and do an MFA and then my PhD so it was one or the other so I didn't really have that surprise plus I was a little bit older too when I went back to school so yeah, so was that. So was I. Same thing. I I, I went as a mature student. Yeah. To, uh, you know, to get yeah, which definitely makes you much more sort of practical and focused. <laughs> this has to actually end somewhere. Yes. You have to yes. Have a plan. So why do you think the the pandemic and the lockdown and all that stuff? Like, what has it been like for for artists? Well, um, I know for me, it's been pretty great. Um, <laughs> for the people who have suffered, I'm not trying to make you guys feel bad or anything, but it's been pretty good. I mean, I've been working from home. Um, I don't have the commute time, which is great. Uh, so I actually, you know, during my lunch breaks at work, I'll, sometimes I'll just run downstairs and go on the canvas and start painting or something and then do the dishes, eat my lunch, go back to work kind of thing or take care of stuff around the house. Um, actually, I should say it's mostly been about the same for me, aside from the commute time. Yeah. Huh. It, hasn't been, it hasn't been much better, and it hasn't been worse. So That's fantastic. So you were doing, you were doing your stuff online 
anyway, for the most part. So now it was just like less meetings and going meeting with clients and meeting with people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we do all our meetings now on Zoom and all that stuff and our internal uh, programs that we use. So it's it's been great. I, I do yeah. enjoy working from home. I know it's one day it's going to come to an end, but for now it's it's been good. I don't know if it's going to come to an end. I think I, I think a lot of this stuff is going to stick. Like for instance, I mean the the obvious one is people just um, traveling across, getting in a plane and going to LA for a meeting and being meeting with a bunch of people and then sleeping in a hotel and then flying back to Montreal. Like that, that world I think is mostly done. Like I think people actually are going to meet even after the pandemic. A lot of the the stupid business travel, like which seemed, it seemed like it was necessary. I think that's going to be gone. And I think a lot of the um, meeting with clients for different things, I think that's going to happen um, on Zoom or some other that that's going to be the new normal. So I don't. I mean, I, I think that'll probably be uh, that'll be good for people like you who who like that. Um, for people who hate it, I, I think there's a there's a lot of people who, especially people who are um, like real hardcore extroverts or, mm-hmm. or people who people who have very unhappy marriages or unhappy home life. I think there's a, a good chunk of people for whom going to the office is like their social life. It's yeah. their whole, like, that's what they actually, uh, you know, they, they love it. And not having that is driving them crazy. And they can't wait to like go back to, like, I, you know, I have people that I've known at, at work who come in early, like for no reason, just because they want to hang out like with yeah. their colleagues <laughs> and they stay late and they always come and bug you in your office and stuff like that. Like, and you can tell they're just like really lonely people. And like, this is their, this is their bar. This is their cafe. This is their place to, to hang out. And um, I think that's going to be for a lot of people. There's, there's a lot of organizations that are realizing, you know what, we, maybe we don't need to pay $15,000 a month for this office space. Maybe we can just, you know, have people work from home, you know, and then like maybe we can, you know, do that from now on. I mean, yeah. And a- I think like, I mean, it, it really does depend on your personality. So I'm definitely more introverted and I know I've, I'm a fan of your podcast. So I've heard you say you're extroverted many, many times. Um, yeah. so <laughs> you are extroverted. So I know for you, it may be a little bit of a different reaction to me, but, um, I know for me, it's it's a good fit. Yeah, well, it looks like it's the new normal, so it'll be, it'll be good for you. I, another question I want to ask you about is, you're from the Maritimes. Yeah. And that is just, I mean, that is kind of, I find that really, really interesting. So how did you, how did you sort of end up in Montreal? And if you, you know, what was it like? Do you still go back there? Do you, like, what do you, what are your thoughts on the Maritimes and New Brunswick and all that stuff. Well, it's funny because Montreal for me was, um, I, I fell in love with the city. I actually came to the city by myself somewhere in the yachts. Um, I just took a train from New Brunswick and I came here and I spent a few nights. And uh, 
the first night I got here, I got a, I got a, I, I knew very little about the city. It was just sort of a stopover city for me always. And then when I was uh, <clears throat> a while back, I took the trip up and I remember just like, I'm going to go out tonight. I don't know anybody in the city, but I'm just going to go bar hopping. And that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and so I randomly picked this, like I, had, I got this motel room in Longay and I just took the Metro. I randomly picked the Metro. I didn't look up anything at all. I got off a of Mount Royal Metro and like good pick i know <laughs> what just, a good it was, pick it was a guess it was like just pure like mount, mount royal that sounds very interesting okay let me go there and i got there and i remember going to like this lounge kind of place and i remember just making a bunch of friends that night and uh they were just so cool uh and they like invited me to this after hour club so i went there and it was like kind of a rave kind of atmosphere and then oh my god which club it was uh Oh, I forget the name now. Oh, it was so long ago. Um, it'll come back to me. Um, <laughs> stereo, yeah. maybe? Or? Yeah, I think it might have been stereo, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it could have been, yeah. And so I went to went there, and then uh, I was like, wow, that was incredible. And then I came back to my motel room in uh, Longay the next morning. And I go, I think I should move here. <laughs> <laughs> And then, so like I took the train back and then, but I didn't, I didn't move there right away. It was like maybe like, like quite a few years later. And then a friend was like, um, Hey, I'm moving up to Montreal. Uh, I got a spare room. Do you want to move up? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Let's do it. I'm not doing much here. So, <laughs> and that's how I got here. And then from there, I eventually, I worked for a number of years and then I uh, went to school for my poli sci degree and then stayed. And then I went away, lived in Japan for a year, lived in Toronto for a bit, came back here, met my wife, went back to school in computation arts, and that's how I'm here. And now I live in Code St. Paul. Wow. That's just, that's just <laughs> wild. I mean, so what, I mean, what are the differences? Because I, I have all of these. I have a number of friends who've moved to the, to the Maritimes, and, um, and it's, I've heard the Kind of the various stereotypes about New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and PEI and Newfoundland, and obviously there's a lot of regional difference. But but the general the general stereotype that I've formed in my mind is that uh, compared to here, it's people are way more friendly, way more relaxed, way more laid back. Um, that but that the so the downside is that. Uh, there's, I don't know, there's like a lot less energy, uh, a lot less kind of diversity. And what I've heard from you know, lots of people is that the, the extreme alcoholism gets to be like a bit much <laughs> after a while. <laughs> like I had my yeah. first, my first, my first really serious uh, girlfriend, she moved to, she lived in Nova Scotia for a number of years she went to Mount Isles and then, then she ended up moving to Halifax after that and hanging out and she ended up she said she really liked it she had a honeymoon period where she really loved it for the first I think it was like the first year or so and then she said you know she just started noticing like some some disturbing patterns. Like she said you know because you remember like growing up in Montreal you know sometimes we would have friends in her teenagers and they would really sort of overdo it like one night and then they would maybe like puke at the end of the night 
And that would be about it. Right. And then they'd be like, okay, I got to watch out. You got to be careful next time. That was clearly too much. She, she talked about how she had to get her couch professionally cleaned a number of times because people would get at parties would get so loaded that they would piss themselves and shit themselves. Like they would just, they would do, you know, like totally like train spotting, you know, like they would go so, so, so far uh, in, in a way that um, she had just never seen anything like that growing up in, uh, in Montreal, even, you know, Inverdown and LaSalle and Villamar, she'd never, I mean, does that resonate with you at all? A hundred percent. I have a quick story about a friend of mine. Well, it was a friend. I don't haven't, you know, lost touch with him after a long time. This is the story I'm about to tell is a hundred percent, not me for sure. It's my friend. So it's not a substitute or anything. Okay. So what happened was he, he told me the story. Itch. Yeah. 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 He right. told me the story the next day and it was in a bar and he went into a bar and he got really, really drunk. This is in St. John on like Prince William Street, like a like one of the one of the rowdy bars on Prince William Street. And so he he's in there and he goes to the bathroom stall and he passes out drunk. And uh everybody locks up in the bar. So like the workers are gone, it's late at night. They totally forget that he's in the bathroom stall. And so he, he told me that he woke up the next morning in a bathroom stall. He got up, started walking, and he felt the back of his pants and he realized he had crapped himself. Oh, my God. <laughs> and he was in the bar, like it's dark because everybody turns the lights off and everything. And he had to figure out his way to get out of the bar and he walked all the way home like that. And so when you brought up that story about the, you know, passing out drunk and stuff like that, I was like, yeah, that happens there. <laughs> yeah. What what do you think? What do you think's going on with that? Like that difference? Because it, it does seem, you know, I, in, in one of my classes, we've we've been looking at because um, there's there's all sorts of really fascinating research into alcohol that's come out recently, and it's kind of changed a lot of our, you know, what we think about how it affects the brain and the body and things like that. But I, I mean, what do you think's going on with that, that very different drinking culture that you find in? At the Maritimes, you also see it in a lot of the UK and in um, parts of Northern Europe, like especially like Finland and stuff like that, where you have really high rates of of severe alcoholism. Honestly, uh, I haven't really thought much about it. It's just something you did. It was like, you just drink. <laughs> it's, it's just but something you, you, you did. You clearly didn't do it to that kind of excess. Oh, I drank a lot though uh, back in the day uh, in St. John. I mean, you just, we have a beer there called Alpine Beer. That's sort of what St. John is proud of, or New Brunswick Alpine Beer. So you just drink a bunch of Alpines and go out, go to the bars. Um, when I was in St. John, there were so many bar fights every night. Um, <laughs> so, so many. I don't know if it's like that anymore. I feel like, I feel like it's a lot nicer now um, than when I was there, but. Every weekend there'd be bar fights. It was just ingrained in there. It's like you go to the bar, you might get a punch in the head. <laughs> well, that's I mean, I, I remember growing up um, just across the aqueduct from where you're living now and going out. When I started going out to the bars, I first I first went out to the to sort of the English bars and clubs, like on Bishop and Crescent and stuff like that. And th- those, it was just like it was just 
fist fights breaking out on the dance floor at the bar like all the time. And then, of course, when, when it was closing time, there, it would just be a slugfest out on the street. People would be wow. slugging fights and, and all this stuff. And for a simple bar that was, you know, not that big, uh, there would be a team of like steroid pumped like bouncers with like headsets and like no necks and they would be, and they would be like kind of moving around and you needed to have you know this team of like beefy like guys like in order to maintain order in these places and then i would say about a i don't know maybe a year after i started going out i started going out with a different set of friends to the french bars and clubs and that was just a completely different world because, you know, you'd go to a place on Saint-Denis or on Mount Royal and the place would have like four floors and they would have no bouncer, like wow. absolutely no bouncer, like the whole place. And the entire night people would be you know, drinking, getting high, getting fucked up. They'd be like having fun, getting rowdy, no fistfights, like at all, like absolutely none. And I was, uh, yeah, I think that was like one of the first moments where I realized that there is this thing called culture and it shapes human nature in interesting ways. And like, if you get shaped by a different culture, it can shape your psychology, your sociology, it can shape the way you behave in, in all sorts of ways. And so you think the way that you're behaving is just spontaneous natural but in fact it's been programmed so here you have like these populations that are literally living next door to each other who just um behave in a totally different way when they're um, inebriated right so that's like i mean i never knew and then of course when i when i moved down to the states i was living in baltimore um i remember being amazed down there I went out and you, you walk around in a club or a bar and you bump into like some guy who's like, a, like a walking wall, a, a huge, <laughs> and the guy would immediately be like, excuse me, you okay? You having a good time? And they'd be, oh, like, that's super, amazing. Super, they'd be super, super polite and super. And this happened to me. Like the first time this happened, I was like, okay, that was weird. Uh, and then like, after it happened a couple of times, I was like, okay, this is getting really, really weird. So I asked, this guy who lived in my building like um how come everybody's so polite in the bars and clubs like if you bump into somebody everybody's like oh excuse me excuse me and he goes well because you know every third person's armed like there's no reason to start something with somebody unless you mean to start something well that's one thing the the story that you brought up about that and your experience between the you know going out in sort of Bishop Street versus uh, going up to some of the French clubs. Um, one thing I noticed about Montreal right away was that you didn't have to worry about getting into a fight, um, mm-hmm. at, at least from what I saw and what I experienced. And since I've lived here, I've never felt in fear for myself when I've gone out at night. Um, whereas in like Saint John back then, I think Saint John's a little nicer now, but Saint John back then. You know, if you bump into somebody the wrong way, you know, a fight might break out. Yeah. Um, and, and it comes down to, I think, you don't know who's packing heat in a big city versus St. John, you know, nobody's going to bring a gun to a club. Well, here, mostly, almost nobody would, too. Right. So it's 
I mean, I don't know. That's because I, I mentioned to the guy, I said, well, you know, in Canada, at least in, in English Canada, if you go to like place and uh, generally speaking, if there's like fights all the time and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, the only reason that you're seeing lots of fights like that is because everybody kind of knows on one level that that they're, nobody's going to pull out a knife or a gun. Yeah. But as soon as as soon as that happens a couple of times, people get really polite really fast. <laughs> like, like they just get, because the the stakes are just so much higher, and you have to, you know, because I mean, there was when we were living there, there was, um, it was for a while, it was like the murder capital of the of the United States, and it's you know it usually makes a good top ten. <laughs> it's like it makes the top ten. Yeah. But, but when you're living there, you realize that. Um, the vast majority of the murders are poor minority men involved in the drug trade, killing poor minority men involved in the drug trade. That is like the vast majority of the people. Like this idea that somehow people who are not involved in that business are just like walking down the street and they get shot. That that almost never happens. I mean, it does happen, but it's it's pretty rare. You know, like usually the people who get shot like yeah they intended to shoot that person like that was exactly like it was um, but yeah they you know aside from that if you're what they call a civilian they mostly just leave you alone you know, there's not even like you can even walk through very dangerous neighborhoods and as long as you're like a civilian you're not a member of a, a rival gang or something like that they just, you, people leave you alone it's, uh, it's very weird. <laughs> very. Yeah, I, mean, it, up, I wouldn't think that and, about Baltimore, actually. What would you, I mean, you've, you've seen The Wire, I guess. Yeah, or I actually haven't, and I should, because I, I heard it's one of the best television shows ever, so I probably will. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But like, and it kind of surprised me about New York City, too, whereas I found how friendly the people were. And um and so I guess, you know, you could probably equate the same thing with Baltimore, too. I just thought Baltimore was more like a little more downtrodden and violent. But from what you describe, I guess I had a wrong impression of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's always like I mean, New York is a weird one, though, because when were you when were you in New York? The last time I was there was in 2018, actually. Wow. Because yeah, New York used to be really dangerous for mm-hmm. for a long time and then it got it got cleaned up for a number of reasons and it became really really safe but yeah i mean there was a, a time in new york where pretty much it, it was just if you were going to visit there for a long weekend or for a state of you would factor in getting mugged mm-hmm. <laughs> as, a, as an expense like oh yeah okay well i've got Meals, uh, you know, room. And, uh, oh yeah, and mugging. Like you'd factor that in. People would even get um, get like two wallets and have one wallet with their cards and stuff like that, and keep that in one place and another one with money in it. Just like if they got mugged. I mean, and then that just that just ended, right? But you were also in Japan. Yes, I taught English there for a year after my poli sci degree. What was that uh, like? fantastic yeah i loved it i was in a small town um got the full-on japanese experience actually there was only like three or four other people in my town other foreigners in my town i should say 
Um, no, maybe closer to eight or nine. So the town was mostly Japanese people. So I got it'd be equivalent to like moving to like small town Quebec to learn French or something. So. <laughs> it's just you got the full cultural did you, experience. Did you find it was uh, very welcoming of, of outsiders and things like that? Or uh, ish, a lot of people were shy of me, so you know they would kind of get nervous when they'd start talking to me and stuff, and then. I'd be on my bike, biking to school, and the little kids would go, hello, you know, practicing their <laughs> And then other people would just stare at you and be like, oh, gaijin, you know? So yeah. you just, you kind of, people stare at you everywhere you go in a town like that. You kind of feel like a celebrity, um, <laughs> even though you're not famous in the slightest. But uh, it can be a little annoying, though, when you, you know, you're kind of in a grumpy mood and you just want to go to the store and get your groceries and get out people are staring at you going, oh, gaijin, you know, or like starting to talk with you like, oh, I'm going to practice my English with you. I'm like, really not in the mood, buddy. I got to go. That's so funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard all sorts of crazy stories about the teaching English in Japan thing. Like one of my, my buddies, Steve, he said that he was there for, I think he was there for four years in total. Wow. But he, he said uh, people would, you know, one time he was, I can't remember the whole story was very convoluted but he was coming back from some party he had gone to he was all kind of like he'd been partying for like days and he somehow lost his lift back to where he was supposed to go and so he was i think he was like actually hitchhiking like he put like by the and these people saw him they were driving on the other side of the highway so they were driving completely in the opposite direction that he wanted to go in and they turned around. They did like a full like U-turn across like, you know, lanes of traffic. Uh, stopped, asked him where he wanted to go, and drove him all the way home. Wow. Completely in That's the opposite so direction. Yeah. Completely in the opposite direction of where they were going. Uh, just all these kind of amazing. But then I also try and square that with, you know, the fact that Japan is to some extent, like Quebec on crack, you know, you have this, this country that has um, practically no birth rate to speak of. Uh, they have a very expensive welfare state like we do. And, and of course, um, as you know, from your poli sci degree, uh, that if you're going to have an expensive welfare state, you need to have one of two things. You either need to make babies or you need to invite lots of immigrants yeah. to move to your place. There is no third option. Like you have to, because you need to have a constant supply of young people entering the workforce and paying lots of taxes and uh, paying into the system way more than they're taking out. And if you don't, then you get um, an aging population and eventually the system just collapses in on itself. Right. So you uh, and both Japan and Quebec have this. Uh, I mean, Japan has it way, way worse than Quebec, but it, we can sort of look at Japan and say, okay, well, that's what's going to happen here if we don't get our shit together. But they, they, they're not very, they have like practically no immigrants. It's incredibly hard to become a Japanese citizen. And, uh, and they're not making babies, you know, which is just, has become a kind of they they have they have all these government programs where they're actually like you've probably heard about this where they're trying to teach 
guys how to be good husbands and fathers to make them more attractive <laughs> I did not to Jack. Oh my God. It's really, really do if you do a Google search on it, you can find they have like because there's a whole generation of Japanese women who just don't want to get married because they they look at what um kind of the gendered norms and you know, marriage haven't changed that much in Japan, but everything else has. And so it just looks like a terrible deal to most women. They're like, why would I want to, uh, why would I want to get married when that means I'm going to have to not only do all of my job, I'm going to have to also do all of the childcare, all of the housework, and I'm going to have to take care of his aging parents as well as my own aging parents. Wow. I don't think I'm going to sign up for that. <laughs> yeah. It's... And so they, they, they have an unbelievably low um, birth rate, unbelievably low marriage rate. And now they even have this new thing, which just, I don't even know how to wrap my head around this, where uh, I'm going to mess up to the exact numbers. You can look them up after, but like a very, very crazy high percentage of Japanese millennials um, are hitting 30 as virgins. So they're not only, not only are they hitting 30 as virgins, they're hitting 30 and they've never been in a relationship at all. Like with any, like a romantic relationship with anybody. And they don't I want totally to believe it. <laughs> and this is, and this has government officials in Japan absolutely losing their shit because they're like we're going to be extinct like we're going to basically like our, our our society our culture has no future if, if present trends continue i mean the quebec, quebec government has been stressing about the same sort of thing for a while which is why um you know they had that policy where if you have a third kid you get like a whole bunch of extra money and they were trying to encourage people to have um to have more kids right and then they they invited they invited all sorts of immigrants who spoke french to come to quebec and of course who's going to come to quebec who speaks french well mainly people from former french colonies in north yeah. africa and the middle east so they all get here it's like hey you wanted us here because we speak french oh by the way fuck you we're <laughs> we're gonna treat you poorly <laughs> Like we wanted just, French, but we didn't want you necessarily. Yeah, can can we get the white ones? <laughs> that's like that's sort of like what their uh, the unspoken message was. Um, which, yeah, I mean, like, I mean, France is kind of a basket case too right now. So they they have actually been getting, you know, some, um, you know, much more French immigration now. But but still, the bulk the bulk of the people who who want to come here are going to be coming from former French colonies, yeah. which, which doesn't, you know, doesn't. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what would you say in terms of this is, I always ask this about people from other parts of the Canada. So what would you say is, uh, is racism more of a, more of a deal here or in the Maritimes or in other parts of Canada? Is it like, or is it sort of the same or? I've been fairly fortunate. Um, I mean, in, in New Brunswick, I obviously got the word packy a few times growing up as a kid and stuff like that, mostly as a kid. Um, I encountered quite a bit of ignorance, um, but 
it was ignorance with a good intention, if you know what I mean. So it was basically no, like, I don't. Okay, a wonderful so, idea. <laughs> yeah, so so it, it was more like ignorance of like your background or sort of like uh, ignorance without negative intentions. Does that make sense? So it's just like okay, so oh. yeah, so it's like they didn't they they didn't mean they weren't trying yeah. to hurt your feelings. They just were dumb. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And but once you explain it to them, they're like, oh, okay, you know that kind of thing. Um, I mean, I got the Apu voice thrown at me a few times on the school bus and all that, but out and all, I, I never felt threatened by anybody. No one ever chased me down for the color of my skin. Whereas, you know, I've heard stories from friends in other parts of Canada or in England. Well, England is not surprising, actually. But uh, in Quebec, it's been fairly good, too. I mean, here, the thing I notice, obviously, is the language issues. Um but aside from that, again, I have not experienced any kind of threats against my life or anybody yelling at me for the color of my skin or anything like that. Um, That's so it hasn't been too bad here either. Yeah, I've, I think I've been fairly sheltered, I guess. I don't know. And again, I've met a lot of sort of strange people in LA and who you think might be racist but are actually not racist. So I don't really know. I mean, yeah, because I, I still get ignorant comments. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, John. No, I just, I remember you had told me this is years ago that there was this, yeah, like this drunk, this drunk poet. Yeah, I was, was about to bring uh, that up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, shoot. Tell, tell us all about it. I mean, like. Yeah. So I had a friend in town who did a poetry reading. Uh, there's a bookstore on uh, St. Catherine. Oh, I forget the name of it now. Up by St. Up near Concordia. Tiny little bookstore. It's like very, very narrow when you go in English books. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I don't even know if it's still there. I hope it's still there. I know the one you're talking about. I can't remember the, the name of it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so it was, it was there. Yeah. And I guess this, the first time we ever spoke actually was me recounting that story in one of your yeah. Facebook threads. But um, I remember why I walked in and uh, he, he basically had a crowd of people around him, basically his fans. Um, it was and he looked Ar- at me. Argo, right? Argo bookshop. Yeah, that's that it. it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so he saw me come in with uh, with my wife, and I had a bag with me. And he looked at the bag, and he goes, "Geez, I wonder what's in the bag. I wonder if it goes tick tock, tick tock, tick tock." And I was just, <laughs> and when I, I was like, I couldn't, I didn't, it didn't even register because it was just so blatant. You no, know? like uh-huh. I, I just kind of like. I just kind of, I don't even know what I said to him. I said, oh, well, I don't even know. I think I said something like, yep, it's pretty loud or something. like." I said something like that. Just not even a good comeback, nothing. Nothing. I didn't stand up for myself or anything. I just kind of walked away with my wife. And then I sat down and then I looked at her and I go, what just happened? Did he just say that to me? (laughs) So like, so weird. And then he went up to do his reading. And he started creeping everybody out because he was just saying a lot of like sort of sexualized things about women and all this kind of stuff and just saying a lot of like controversial things. And eventually someone was just like, okay, okay, you know, let's just go to the bar and drink. Let's cut the short. (laughs) And so he goes, okay, put his book down, finish the reading, and then everybody left. Wow. So you figure he was just wasted and like like out of his mind and talking 
talking yeah. shit. Like, yeah, yeah. I still don't quite know what to make of that situation because it, it is pretty offensive what he said. But at the same time, it was like he said a lot of offensive things that night to everybody. So it's really hard to say. Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd say that's probably the most ignorant thing I ever encountered in Quebec. Yeah, that's was but, from an Anglophone uh, poet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny that like he didn't even he didn't even have his like sort of stereotypes right. It's like you know, can't you tell in like a South Asian from an Arab? <laughs> like, what is he like? <laughs> It's like when you hear about these, like these Sikhs that got like jumped in New Jersey after 9-11. It's like, can you even get your like? <laughs> can you even get your stereotypes right? Like seriously? Like that's that guy's six four and he's wearing a turban. Like really? <laughs> like that's. But oh, uh, they get they get confused, I guess. But yeah, I mean that's that seems to be this like ongoing thing here where. Uh, this kind of this competition between um, especially in like among journalists that they sort of go back and forth about you know which places is more racist than another and the, kind of all the strange strange conversations that ensue on that and and then there, there becomes this whole thing where I don't know if you've encountered this but I know growing up here I would hear from like CJD and from the Gazette and from various people who sort of took it upon themselves to speak for the English community or for, you know, this, or for the Jewish community or for the Greek community or the whatever Hindu community. And like, and they would say all these things. And I would very often hear them saying like, Oh, you know, Anglophones are so horribly treated. And there's all this. And I was like, what? I'm not encountering that hardly at all ever mm-hmm. like what are you talking about like you're not speaking from my experience right and then you know likewise um you know when you'd have people from other communities saying like okay i'm speaking on behalf of this horribly racist society that i live in and there's some people who hear that and they say wow i feel really heard i feel like somebody's actually talking about this finally and they're but then plenty of other people that i grew up with said uh, you know, that doesn't describe my experience at all i've i've had a perfectly fine time here it's um and, you know, but that, that can get you into some very strange territory anywhere in the world right because and if, i think it's sometimes being in the wrong place at the wrong time like there could be a day where i'm walking down the street and i meet this raging nazi who wants to shoot the first brown person he sees you know yeah. there you go i've had full-on racist racial attack <laughs> yeah well and, and it also it's subject to these sorts of things are are subject to a lot of um what's, what's the word for it okay I'll, I'll give you an example so one of my students was telling me how um she she works how can i say this without getting in trouble here and so she, she works at a pharmacy on the west island and they had had a, a whole bunch of fake hundreds and fake fifties that had come into the store, and mm-hmm. so they did basically the they had lost like a bunch of money on this over the space of a few weeks, and so the owners came up with this new policy, and they said they put 
know those things like with the I don't know the UV light or whatever to check and see if the bill's real. Yeah. You know those things. Yeah. So they they put those behind every single cash. They put signs up um, at each register saying like uh, all all fifties and one hundreds will be checked. Right? And then they told all the cashiers like you absolutely because the cops told the owners that very often the counterfeiters have confederates they have people that they're working with who are cashiers at the place that are in on the scam and are getting like you know they're getting a certain amount of money to kind of accept bogus bills right so they told the cashiers okay you need to check every single 50 or 100 that comes in and if you if you don't check one of them and you accept like a if you don't, if we catch you not checking one, even if it's a completely good bill, uh, you're going to get a warning. And if uh, if it happens again, you're going to be fired. Right. So it was really serious. So uh, so she started off. So then um, I don't know, like a couple of days or something like that into this new policy, um, a, a young woman comes into comes into the pharmacy and she's. She, she guesses from her accent and her appearance that she's from somewhere in the Caribbean. She can't tell exactly where, maybe, maybe Jamaica, she can't tell. And she gets up and she goes to pay with a $50 bill. Bill was like you know, 40 something. So it wasn't like $5 thing paying with a 50, but she goes to pay for it. And she takes the bill and starts to, um, to put it in the machine. And the woman like just gets incredibly angry at her. Just yelling at her and says like, you're only doing that because I'm black. And this is like, uh, and she takes out her phone and starts filming her. And she says, here is everyday racism. This is what I have to deal with. You know, being like, you know, I, nobody else in line is having like their money checked. I am. And this is clearly, you know, because, uh, because I'm black and stuff like that. And, all these other people in the store start like yelling at her and saying, you fucking racist bitch and blah, blah, blah. And all oh this my stuff. goodness. Yeah. And it, and then it, this thing was like put online on like Instagram and Facebook, YouTube. And it was like, you know, went viral. And it was like, and she was completely, completely horrified. And like, so she was like crying. She was like so upset. She was so, she said like, I'm not, I have to check all of these bills. I'm doing it to absolutely. And she said, you know, the person that was in front of you, who was like a you know, middle-aged white woman from DDO. She was, I, you know, I checked her bill as well. <laughs> like, I have to check everybody's. And she said, look at the sign. And she said, there's a sign at every single cash. Didn't listen to her. Uh, went off. And so I just, yeah, it just seems to me like when, as soon as you get kind of a charged environment where people's nerves are raw, you know, because they've been, they've been hurt, they've been upset. Uh, then you, you can easily get into this situation where people are, people should have looking for signs of, of disrespect, you know, and they, you know, probably my guess is they probably will pick up on plenty of, real signs of disrespect, right? It's not as if like, but then they'll also get false positives, right? And I, I, I have no idea 
it seems more and more these days like we're in that kind of an environment and um the hard thing too relating to that story though is that sometimes you may encounter someone giving you a dirty look and you know a million things can run through your head you're like why did that stranger just give me a dirty look and so in my case it's you know somebody some old man walks by and gives me old white man walks by and gives me a super dirty look and i'm just like well it's got to be my skin color you know like it's you don't know and then and that can be frustrating too where you're like why did that person just and that person just could be having a bad day i don't know and they just happen to look at me at the wrong time i don't know but it, it's it's the not knowing part that also kind of eats away at you too or you're just you're never sure is like is racism i encountered is it not it's that part can be a little bit uh taxing as well so i can sort of probably the lady who was in the lineup probably did experience a lot of shit <laughs> probably seen sure. a lot of it yeah um but you know in that kind of situation it's 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 hard to just yeah it's a it's a tough one to tackle because i kind of see both angles there in a sense i can't really say like well she was in her rights to do it but then that girl working there was forced to do it so yeah, it's, it's yeah. tough. I wonder, I wonder how, like we, how we turn the temperature down on things like that when they've gotten, because I, you know, I've seen in big and small ways, just in, in friendships or family relationships where you, you can get to a point with, you know, in a relationship with somebody that you were you know, once very close to, you can get into a relationship where there's been like a lot of badness on both sides and people are kind of feeling defensive and kind of angry and resentful and stuff like that and you you can get to this place where almost anything that the person does is interpreted in like the least charitable way (laughs) i think it's like sort of like you get to that place in a relationship where it's like don't look at me in that tone of voice (laughs) <laughs> what are you talking about like, you know and you get like just so on edge about uh, and i'm just wondering like i know this is, sounds like incredibly polyamish but uh do, do you think art is is i mean nietzsche definitely believes this but like, do you think that art is something that can turn down the temperature on things like that uh yes i think so i the way to do it i'm not exactly sure how um i could just think of um uh what's what's a good example um or like say like movie like uh boys in the hood or menace to society um a person in middle america who has no experience with black people at all and he just sees the news and all that stuff and he's like oh that's what they do they shoot each other in the streets watches that movie and he's like oh it just gave him context <laughs> of the experiences of a urban black youth for example where he's he wouldn't have had been access to that before um so i think it's through storytelling for sure um if that's what you mean well I, I mean just sort of generally because it seems to you me know, like very often people who who have a hard time uh, bonding on other things they can if they love if they love the same art because they both like like the same kind of music or the same kind of um, the same kind of comics or the same kind of movies 
or the same like you know I've I've seen this many times with with students where they're both really and like two students who generally speaking would have lots of reasons to be grumpy like like I'm thinking of two students in particular one of them was uh, sort of the uh, son of Palestinian parents uh, who've got a lot of a lot of issues with <laughs> with Israel and with like Zionists and all this stuff and then the uh, a daughter in the same class who was from a very Zionist household and uh, went to a Jewish private school in Montreal and like and the two of them bonded over the Sopranos and Dr. Dre <laughs> in this class. And it was just, it was amazing to me. It's like if they were to talk about politics or if they were to talk about, uh, well, then it would be nothing but arguing. But meanwhile, they could bond on these these art forms. And that becomes like their, their allegiance to that particular, those, those sort of aesthetic commitments. Uh, can transcend political commitments, yep. right? which is which is really interesting. It is. I mean, I, just, yeah. I mean, so you do see that. Oh yeah, see that as a possibility. Oh, of course. So, yeah, yeah. It's uh, like it's so, a, it's a it's sharing it's a shared culture in a way. Yeah, that goes around. Yeah, um, it, that goes because it seems like if you very often if you think of things in terms of. Uh, interest group politics or or even just politics in general, very often the games that we play in the political sphere, a lot of them are, are zero sum, or at least it feels like it's zero sum. Like, you know, my group gains, your group loses or some other group. And so the, it's always this like competition in, uh, whereas like when it comes to um, a lot of aesthetic commitments or religious commitments, then you have situations where like there's not a like we can all like hip hop or we can we can all like uh you know graphic novels or we, we can all like um true blood or the right like we can, we can we can all love like these different kind of art forms and there's no or, or anime or something like that. There's no limit on how many people can get in on that, right? Well, okay. There, there used to be. Now, of course, there's there's the whole issue of cultural appropriation and all that stuff. Have you bumped into any of that in the art world? Like people telling you what people telling you what you can and cannot do. No, like, but there are things that I wouldn't touch. For example, like because um, I like I would never, for example, try to emulate a normal more or so painting or anything like that. I mean, it's just too risky. It's, can you describe that uh, so, to our listeners? Or like, so just basically appropriating any sort of um, uh, First Nations style of artwork, for example. Um, like I would not, uh, I would not incorporate that into my work at all. It's, it's, no, it's a no-go zone. Um <laughs> It's yeah, you're asking for trouble if you do that, and out of out of respect as well. Whereas I think back in the '80s or '90s, you could be like, "I'm just gonna throw everything in the mix, see what comes out." Yeah, and I think that is sort of gone now. Um, you know, what do for you myself, think, what do you think? What do you think produces like better art? 
this the free for all or the kind of people being way more cautious? Oh, um, personally, I would say the free for all. I feel like I might get in trouble for saying this. I don't know. Uh, I, I think freedom to to create any kind of subject matter you want to, I think, is the best way to make art. Yeah, no, the reason I ask is I remember, you know, we both we both studied under Horst Hutter and I, I remember he had us read um, in a number of his classes, Leo Strauss and Strauss in a number of books like Persecution and the Art of Writing. And he he had this claim, which I remember just struck me as totally, totally counterintuitive when I was in my 20s, but now in my 40s. I increasingly think maybe he was onto something, but what, what Strauss said was that when you have a free for all, um, it seems like a good idea, but it, the end result is usually that you get a lot of like incredibly vulgar art and that becomes very predictable and actually kind of boring. And so he said like, it's, he said, it's not an accident that, you know, a lot of the really best art that human beings have ever created and the best literature has, has been produced in cultures that were not terribly free, like mm-hmm. cultures where there were like lots and lots of limitations on what you could and could not do. And that this actually had the result of making artists way more ingenious. Like you had to sort of like, if you had to, rather than just being able to like paint like a big vulva on a thing. <laughs> like, so you had yeah. to like find ways to be more subtle or if you had a political message or if you had like some subversive message, you had to be more subtle and sneaky about it. And, and, and civilization is, you know, to some extent, basically just a process of, of refining baser, tendencies, drives, desires, fears. Um, so the more that people are forced to be more refined and more kind of subtle, he, he said this actually produces better art. Now, I, I recognize that's an incredibly uh, unpopular opinion, but I have some a friend of mine who's living in China right now, and he says, you know, there's the arts are flourishing in China, they're doing very, very well under in an authoritarian system. Like, and it's it's actually it just means that they have to be smarter and more more sneaky. I mean, what do you what do you think of that? Extremely interesting. Huh. I'll have to research that. Look into that more. Um, yeah, I know, I know the, I the thing that I can relate to what you're saying in that regard is sort of being free with limitations. So. It's kind of like you're limited, but because you're limited, you are forced to come up with, like you said, your own ingenious ways to make your art work um, and to, to do the stuff that you want to do, uh, kind of freedom with limitations. It's like when you have too much choice, it's kind of like um, you can get a little lost. Is that sort of the idea that you're getting at? Well, it's it's more than that. I mean, that is that's actually that's a very very profound point, which uh, 
Yeah, I totally buy that. Who's the guy who said that? The guy who talks about satisficers and maximizers. And I can't remember the name of the guy, but it's yeah, that was a really, really fantastic book. But no, I'm not so much talking about the kind of how too much choice can be overwhelming. It's that if you have if you have a lot of boundaries, like if you're limited um, in terms of your materials and your subject matter and what you can and cannot say, that those uh, the limitations of style. This is once again it's total like Nietzschean point, but like Nietzsche said that the the limitations of style are key to culture, and they're they're absolutely right. And that if you can just anytime you want go to the canvas, let's say, and just paint absolutely anything, right? That um, chances are that's going to produce work of less quality than if somebody tells you, okay, you can only use these materials. They dry at this speed. So if you do this, you're stuck with it. <laughs> like if you, yeah. and if you have like limitations on what you can, um, what you can produce, that that actually will step up your game in many ways. Interesting. I mean, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't know. Like, I really don't know, you know, whether I, I buy that or not. It's, I don't know either, the, but it is interesting though. Like it, it's got me thinking. I'm, I mean, the, the first example I can think of is movies. Um, you know, for example, United States, um, golden age of cinema, well, one of the golden ages of cinema that for a lot of people was the 70s. And that was the the time when the artists had a chance to run the studios in a sense where they were kind of allowed to make what they wanted to make without any kind of studio interference. Um, mm -hmm. Without anybody stepping in and, you know, make what you want to make as long as you get the numbers and people go to the cinema, you know? And we still get people going to the movie theater. So the directors were giving carte blanche to make what they wanted to make writers and directors so i, I don't really know how I, I can't really say which yeah. one is more uh, conducive to art making to better art making i'm not sure yeah i don't i don't know either but I, it definitely seems like some of the uh, you know some of the artists that i've met who are doing the most interesting stuff are people who have been given kind of commissions and told like okay you need to produce something. Like, for instance, I know this is very déclassé to say this, but I, I know people who have gone into advertising and marketing, and they say, like, I was talking to uh, uh, to a friend of mine today on the phone, and he, he's gone into marketing. And he used to do, like, really kind of fine art photography and things like that and all that stuff. And he he just got sick of being poor. And so he's like, now he's, like, doing marketing and everything. And he said, you know, it's actually... It's been surprising. He said, you know, I figured, okay, I'm just selling out because I, I'm sick of being poor all the time. I'm getting too old to be poor. So he's, but he said, it's actually remarkably creative because he goes, I'll just, I'll get this job and I need to produce like um, advertising copy or like short, like film or And they've told me what, what the goal is and what the subject matter is. And then once that's all there, then I kind of can play with that. And he goes, it's actually quite freeing to have um, to have like this thing that I have to do rather than sitting there going, what am I going to do today? Like, 
It's, it's funny. It reminded me of like when Leonard Cohen, he went to go study with uh, Zen Buddhism with the Roshi on uh, Mount Baldy in California. And he talked about how, you know, one of the reasons why he turned to Zen Buddhism is because he had just, he felt tapped out. He was really depressed. He was not producing any new songs and poetry or his, his art was tapped out, you know, and, uh, and he said what was really freeing about the um, living in the monastery was the fact that the day was just so structured. Like he had a time that he had to wake up, a time that he had to eat, a time that he'd meditate. Everything was on a strict. And then he immediately was like, oh, I'm a famous guy. I'm rich. I should get to like meet with the boss man and have personal conversations with him like every day. And the Roshi was like, uh, no, you don't. <laughs> and, he, and so for the first, for the first, like, I don't know, it was like a total karate kid thing. Like now you paint fence. <laughs> like, and now he's like, he initially didn't get to speak to the Roshi at all. He instead had to bring him tea every day. And he would have to bring him tea exactly the right way, made the right way. And if it wasn't the right way, the Roshi would like throw it on the ground and say, go make it again. It's like um, something out of a novel or something. Yeah. And it was, so he had to do this. So here he was this incredibly self-indulgent, like famous guy who always had people, you know, falling over to do things for him and to, and he realized it kind of made him very narcissistic and very self-centered. And, and so having to actually make somebody tea every day, in this ritualistic way and like bring it to him. And then he'd check to see if it was right. And if he was right, he'd say, go away. <laughs> and having to do that every day, he said it was um, incredibly liberating, right? To have that, that um, sort of like the stability and predictability of his, uh, of his day and his routine and, and thinking about other people's needs. Um, and then when he's, uh, you know, he wrote some of his best stuff during that period. And it was, it was just very kind of the, the discipline, right? The, um, so I don't know, maybe, maybe well, I mean, all. that's kind of more how you structure your day, I think. And I think that is very important that you have a consistent sort of routine with what you do. Um, yeah. Like, so your you your routine things. your routine is basically you have your your day job of doing special effects and then at night you do the painting. Yeah, night after the daughter goes to bed. So, <laughs> so where is your when is your next uh, your show? I mean, when is your next? What are you working on right now? Um, working on a few more paintings. Um, I have something in the works uh, in terms of a show potentially coming up. Um, I don't want to say what it is or where it is because I don't want to jinx it. Okay. But uh, if that happens, that'll be in about a month's time. Ooh. Um, and then from there, I could keep everyone posted, uh, keep you posted, all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's not for sure yet. So I don't want to jinx it. It'll be my first show in a long time. Uh, First time showing paintings in a long time, actually four years, I'd say, um, because, yeah, Amazing. yeah, because I, uh, you know, started, we had a kid, well, we got married, had a kid, started a new job, new careers, so, you know, the, uh, that stuff had to come first, and then I could 
get back to painting, which has been for about a year, year and a half now. Yeah, um, I think that's I think that's very much uh, the norm. You know, the, you, you'll see very often with with um, authors and artists and all that stuff where they'll have they'll be productive and you'll see like a bunch of publications and shows like in a period and then there's like this this period where like nothing seems to be happening for a while and sure enough when you ask them it's because that's when their kids were young and that's when they were like and then suddenly like when the kids are at school and need you know are not quite as needy and don't need as much time and attention then suddenly you just see all this explosion of productivity and stuff like and you're like oh yeah it's like i mean it used to be that it was it was just because of gender roles it's just women who would have that pattern but now you see it with with guys too like they'll have a five ten year period where there are no shows no publications and then yeah it's all, it's all back you know it's all back so, yeah full force well but yeah i know for me it's it's going to be on and off for the next little bit because i do have a pretty busy busy life as do most people yeah well it's amazing how you know i don't look our sons are 17 and 18 now mm-hmm. and it's amazing how uh, it seems so totally overwhelming when they're younger but then at a certain point and it, it doesn't doesn't take that long actually like at a certain point they've got their own stuff going on and then you've got all this time all of a sudden <laughs> it's, that sounds great. It's, it's it is it is really great but at first it's a little bit kind of almost like a kind of a vertigo feeling it's so like, for you, when, did the, when did the switch kind of happen then it was a very gradual thing because you had two kids i mean that's you you were um, much busier than i was i yes and no i mean i think you know, somebody when when annalise was pregnant with our, our second kid uh, one of my one of my friends he, I asked, he had two kids and I said to him, and he's a very smart, wise guy. And so I, I asked him, I'm like, so what's it like going from one to two? And he, he told me this and my guy is right on, like completely right on. He said, well, having two is uh, when they're getting along, it's half as much work as one. Because, you know, kids, people who have, people who have like, uh, people who have, one kid, you just constantly have to entertain them. Like they're always like, come in, daddy, daddy, come in, mommy, come in, like all the time because like you're the only thing around to play with, right? Like yeah. from the cat, cats get boring, right? So they like, but um, when you have two kids, they always find like even if they're fighting, they always find the other kid so much more interesting than either of you. It's <laughs> so much more interesting. What is the age difference again between uh, thirteen months? Okay, wow, very neck and neck. Yeah, that was not intentional. We believed that whole thing. We we believed that whole like you can't get pregnant when you're breastfeeding thing. Okay, it's wrong. Did you have any any help from family at all, or was it just the two of you raising? Oh yeah, yeah, we babies. We had we had plenty of uh, help from family. Oh, my mom and my aunt and my uncle and my. Yeah, no, we had plenty of uh, help from family, but yeah. So he said, he said, like having two when they're getting along, it's it's like one over two, so it's half as much work as having uh, one. And when they're not getting along, it's like two squared. It's like four times as hard as one. 
Oh my gosh. Um, so that way, and that turned out to be like a hundred percent true. Like it was complete, it was never twice as hard as one. It was yeah. always like either half as much work <laughs> as one or four times as much work as one. Oh my goodness. And, uh, but, but I would say, you know, maybe, you know, 95% of the time they were getting along, which meant that um, it was like, like, for instance, to give you an example, I, with friends of mine who have like one kid, it is practically impossible to have a conversation with that friend. Like if I go over to their house, they yeah. have like an actual, because they're just constant uh, interruptions because the kid, you know, they, they want attention, right? They want yeah. like, they come in like, hey, look at me, look at me, I'm doing a cool thing. You know? <laughs> and if they don't get attention from doing a cool thing, they'll do a shitty thing and get your attention in that way, right? <laughs> but with having like two kids, it was not like that at all. Like I could have, we could have people over and they would be just doing their thing over there and they would both find each other much more interesting than the adults. Wow. And so they would, um, you know, I mean, they, I, you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses, but definitely kids who are only children, I find um, they, they often tend to be much more articulate and much more kind of polite and much more sociable just because they, they've had to sort of adjust to talking to adults a lot mm-hmm. and to oh. having... They've had to, they've, they've had to learn how to like, you know, they've had to learn how to like sort of move along in the adult world. Whereas um, kids who have siblings, they tend to be uh, immersed in, in this parallel universe, like the kid universe, like where they have, they have all their own stuff going on. And, uh, and they mostly just want you to like go away. I can leave them all alone, <laughs> so, yeah. which I'm sure for you as a, a parent of one kid must just sound so foreign to your experience. It totally <laughs> does. And I mean, for me, I was the youngest in my family, so I definitely had a, a, a big interior world. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you were youngest but, of how many kids? Uh, three. There are three of us. I have yeah. an older sister and an older brother. Wow. So that's... Uh... <laughs> Well, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And you'll have to definitely tell us um, when the show is happening. You'll have to uh, tell us when that's happening so that we can uh, we can uh, advertise it and let everybody know. And will this be like an online thing or will it be like an in-person show? Well, if it goes, uh, if everything goes according to plan, it'd be uh kind of a mix of both i guess um oh. i don't think there'll be oh. a vernissage simply because of um all the uh, you know what's going on all that stuff the new restrictions yeah <laughs> yeah yeah but i think it's sort of a place where you can just sort of pop in and see stuff um but it won't be like a solo show or anything it'll be like a few of my paintings so it's yeah, um, but hey something yeah well i can't uh, i can't wait to see it and thank you so much and um, I hope to talk to you again soon. You too, John. And if uh, anybody's interested in seeing my artwork, uh, probably the easiest way is Instagram. Okay. Um, you can just uh, search my first and last name, Nadim, N-A-D-I-M, last name Zaidi, Z-A-I-D-I. Awesome. You can see my stuff there. But yeah, thanks again. Thanks for yeah, having we'll put, me on. We'll put, I've actually we'll been uh, wanting to come on for, uh, for a while. Um, simply because we have a lot in common with, uh, you know, former prof Horst Hutter. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, we'll have to, yeah, we'll, we'll have to definitely, we're going to have, um, we're going to have, we're starting this new thing uh, with like the Likeful Book Club and we're going to have, you know, all different, but definitely one of the books that we've had, a lot of people have sent me messages saying they would like to do um, Nietzsche at some point. You know, mm-hmm. one of, and definitely that'll be, you'll have to be a part of that. <laughs> and a lot of books on, on art and because um, there's a lot of demand for that. So yeah, we'll definitely have to get you in on that action. But uh, anyway, have a great That's night. Nice. And, you too. Uh, and I'll send you, I'll send you that poem about Quote uh, St. Paul of Villamard. <laughs> it'll, it'll give you like a, like a laugh, I'm sure. And what was the name of that book again you were telling me about? Uh, about the oh, movie? yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. William Weintraub's um, The Underdogs. Okay. The Underdogs with the Anglo Resistance on Riel Street. Yeah, it's really, <laughs> it's really quite hilarious. Uh, but, <laughs> but I'll send you a link to that. All right. Well, have a good night. You too, John. Okay. Bye. Okay. Take care. Bye.